Blog Talk Radio. Some people think that business is a game. And what we have learned is that business actually is war. My name is David Banks, and I'm serving an 11-year sentence at the Federal Correctional Complex Prison Camp in Florence, Colorado. I've lost everything. My business, my money, my family, my future, my church, and my freedom. When they wanted people to sign non-disclosure agreements and all that kind of stuff, sometimes they didn't want to do it. It's strange to me. I think it's still strange. It just absolutely makes no sense. Is this really real? Is this happening? And then all of a sudden your whole life is ripped apart. Justice is not fair anymore. They say justice is supposed to be blind. It's not blind. It's not blind. They pick and choose who they want to convict and who they want to see. Ladies and gentlemen of America, what is going on when innocent men get locked away? Ladies and gentlemen, have you stopped to ask the question, where is justice? It's far away. Floored that uh, they were even being raided. Um, uh, it became very clear that the court-appointed attorneys were not working for the guys, um, and it seemed like in many cases that they were um, collaborating or working with the prosecution. We constantly hear in the news every week you're going to hear about another person wrongfully convicted. There you have it. Tough questions in need for answers. Lady Justice has gone missing. Where is she? Is this happening in America? The American dream has turned into a nightmare. Crying children left behind as a result of a corrupt system and corruption. We will seek and search for justice. We will ask the tough questions. We will demand answers as justice lays idle in the streets of America. We look for the answer. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight, we're joined by the IRP5, and the discussion on the table tonight, the the appellate court fails to bring justice to the IRP5, and in this case, the appellate court looked the other way. We're going to deal with that tonight. Why is that? It is is made... made for us to believe that the appellate court is another opportunity to get justice. What we have found in this case, that is exactly 100% false. And that's something that we have to deal with. Folks, hang on. We take off right now.
there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, David Zapolo, and Clinton Stewart, all the of the IRP5, along with Cliff Stewart, Dennis Merritt, Sepson Riddle, and William Williams and the entire AJC radio team tonight as we now begin another chapter, if you will, in the injustice suffered by the IRP5. Tonight we go in unfamiliar territory and really the illusion of believing that the appellate court is something that is there to ensure justice. You'll find out tonight, folks, that is absolutely uh, not true. And Dave Zapolo, as we get ready to go down this road tonight, uh, what are your thoughts on that when it is least to the eye and to the perception that that is the next step for justice? It's proven not to be the case here. When you look at people say that if something goes wrong at your trial, you should be able to go to the appeals court and they're going to look at it and they're going to make a proper ruling. We found out that that is not true. We found out that they will do anything to uphold what the judge's ruling originally was. We found out that they'll even use information that they overturned another case and in our case used it to affirm our case. So you see that there really is no justice out there. No, absolutely right. Demetrius, your thoughts? Yeah, as Dave alluded to, we were in shock. I believe it was 2015. And we thought we had the, we were positive. We were thinking that they would see all the, the corruption that Judge uh, Christine Arguello had done. And like Dave said, we were in shock that justice again is fallen, and they did nothing to, to say uh, – to uphold our innocence. Well, Everything was in in the, the transcripts, and then they really kind of ticked us off. They said that we they they knew what was in our mind at the time. You're not you don't know what was in our mind, and yet you ruled in our lives, and we spent another five years in prison because they didn't do the right thing. Well, the bottom line here is the it is not about assumptions or assuming anything. It is about one thing: was there grave constitutional error? Right. And the right to due process was violated by this judge. And it was clearly laid out uh, in the transcript, very, very clearly. Clint, your thoughts? You know, it's amazing. Uh, one, one issue that we had was the transcript. So the, court, the appeals court said if at any time that you have a transcript that's missing, then uh, it has to be remanded back to the court. And so we saw in a, in a situation where 200 pages of transcripts were missing, but we got no justice at the appeals court level. It's absolutely astounding to see when that happens. No, absolutely right. David Banks, your thoughts? I think America, uh, as we look at the, uh, the politics uh, of the current time, we're starting to see that, uh, that we're dealing with not honest government actors, but really a front organization and we saw the same thing really take place in the federal courts it is not about justice and i don't think people truly understand that our our justice system is not about justice uh we were the what the appellate court did in this particular case it's just unspeakable and i I don't think americans uh, would actually believe it and I still don't think that they, they truly believe it because they always seem to couch back into the opinion that if you got convicted, you did something, you're guilty. 
I have no regrets about what I did in business uh, and what we did with our company. We did not commit a crime, uh, but we were railroaded not only at the district court level, but uh, prosecutorial level and the appellate court level. And we'll get into the salient details about that uh, here shortly. Oh, absolutely. Let's go to some of our co-hosts here of the show. Uh, Cliff, you know, uh, going through this process uh, and what you actually was able to observe, what are your thoughts on the appellate court? I remember you and I uh, were in Washington, D.C., and we talked to people that made it clear what the position of the appellate court was. What what, what do you remember about that conversation? Yeah, I think that was um, one of the most troubling uh, statements that I've ever heard from a member of Congress that the appellate court is not there to fight for you as a defendant. The, the, the appellate court is not there to uh, ensure justice or protect the public. The appellate court is there to protect the uh, the decision of the lower court. So once a decision comes down, the appellate court is set in place to say everything that we can do to keep from overturning this uh, this decision by the lower court judge or everything that we can do to, quote unquote, save taxpayer money by forcing it, the uh, case to be retried. That's what the appellate court is there for. And that was extremely troubling when they explained to us that the appellate court is to is to ensure that the lower court's decision is upheld and it goes back to everything has to be looked at in the light most favorable to the government and that when the when the court even the appellate court which most people think the appellate court there is is set in place that if something happens to me in the lower court that the appellate court will overturn it if there's some type of judicial injustice or malfeasance or error or something to that effect we found that is not the case and the IRP Solutions case is a perfect example of that, that even though the appellate court said, well, yeah, we saw that, you know, uh, one of the defendants was forced to take the stand. We saw your Sixth Amendment right was uh, violated, yeah. but we still are not going to overturn or push the case back to the lower court. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a faith. Uh, that's all it is. It's a faith on the judicial system. Uh, but when you get behind the face, behind the wall, there's no substance to it. That's just the way it is. Uh, we're going to get all. We're going to get into that conversation. Kendrick, I didn't get your thoughts. Uh, tell us your thoughts as, as we get into this uh, topic conversation. Well, I think it's troubling that your fate is left in the hands on if you have a judge that believes in upholding the law in the appellate court, such as H. B. Sheridan. He believed and had principles and ruled in favor of on the Hurricane Carter case, which is a famous case, because he believed that the Constitution and the law was for everyone. But in the IRP Solutions case, it seemed more like a, a we can't let the Tenth Circuit look bad. Mm-hmm. And with all the errors that were made during our trial, and, just, and not just errors, but illegal activity on the side of uh, not just the prosecution, but the gov- but the, uh, the the court itself. Those errors should have been corrected if you had an appellate court judge who's like, you know what, I'm a, I'm going to withhold the principles that I swore when I took this job. So it, it, it's it's kind of sad that it's it's it should be in the hands of the law, but it really is in the hands of if you happen to have a judge that is honest and fair, like Judge Sherrickin, right? You can get justice, and that shouldn't be a roll of the dice. When you right. go and sit before trying to get your case 
you know, uh, correct and adjudicate. Well, no, absolutely right. It shouldn't be a handful of judges that walk with the integrity, uh, such as uh, federal judge actually Sarakin, uh, and he was given a lot of uh, backlash for his position. Uh, but he believed in the integrity of the system. He believed that all men deserve a fair trial, deserve due process. Uh, our hats off to actually Sarakin. We're going to talk more about that. This is a former appellate judge uh, in the federal court. So uh, we're going to get to that on the other side of the break. Really quick, we wanted to get to some current news that uh, is coming on this first day of October of 2020. You're not going to believe this one. Uh, in Aurora, Colorado, the Aurora Police Department releases footage of an officer punishing a black woman left hogtied upside down in a patrol car for 20 minutes, and her words, I beg you, master, to help me. And the officer responded and left this black woman hanging, hog-tied, upside down in a patrol car. Clint, how troubling is that? That is very troubling, uh, Justin. Those words alone just hark back to the worst nightmares of our nation, uh, things that people want to turn away from, but it keeps haunting us. These things keep haunting us, and those words, they're just uh, so visceral. And to see it here in Colorado, it's just absolutely amazing. Well, Dave Zappolo, your thoughts on, on that type of action? And, and I mean, I, I can't even wrap my hands around that one yet. I'm trying to figure that one out. And this, this is ridiculous. I mean, you have the Aurora police chief, the new police chief, Vanessa Wilson, said the car video. So she looked at the video of this happening, and she said that the officer, Levi Huffine, tortured the woman. Okay, Aurora has had problems in the past. They've had a lot of problems. They had a family, a black woman and her four minor children, laid down with, their, with police officers having their guns drawn on yep. this family, and they pulled over the wrong car. They were supposed to be pulling over a motorcycle, and they pulled over a car with a woman and her children in it. Aurora has to do something about these officers. Now, there are probably some good officers on that force. If there are, they need to stop the bad officers. Well, I'll tell you this. I actually saw the YouTube video of a little girl laying face down with her parents or with the woman with her other brothers and sisters she is so little she has no idea what's going on and they had guns drawn and you why is a little she had to be no older than three or four right how is she laying face down on the concrete by officers and then this lady is hog tied the officer makes the statement of the claim uh, oh she was trying to escape really Go ahead, Samson. No, I was just looking at this, and it's like, this seems to be like the MO of the Aurora Police Department, because I'm sitting here looking at, at that article that Dave was talking about. But, like, here's one from that happened back in uh, July 2017, a 25-year-old nursing student living with her two- and four-year-old uh, children. The exact same MO was used on her. She was hawk-tied, handcuffed, you know, hands behind her back, tied to her feet, and rode 21 minutes with her head inverted in the floorboard all the way to the police station, she was begging the police, I can't breathe. I feel like my neck's going to snap, and I don't want to die like this. 
Those are words that should never come out of a person's mouth when interacting with the police. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that this nation's in a sad state. Because the fact, I mean, the fact is, if you're a person of color in the United States, especially now in Aurora, Colorado, you cannot trust the police. You can't trust them to do the right thing. They were trying to execute, I think, a, a child services thing because her, her two-year-old had toddled away from the family gathering, you know, sometime before. But, I mean, that does not warrant a person fearing for their life in the back of a cop car. No. Anybody else is like, hey, it'd be a talking to of, hey. Just keep an eye on your kids. We know they tend to wander off. We know they tend to, people are busy. And you just talk to them like they're a human being, not tie them up like an animal and treat them like they're the lowest of low. That's just not how we are. That's how, how we're supposed to be as a nation. But it's a sad, a sad state. That's where we are right now. No, without question. We're going to get into more of that, folks. Check that out. Uh, the stories continue to keep coming. Uh, listen, America has a long way to go and a lot of wounds to heal. Uh, it is my hope that uh, these actions, uh, if people are held accountable, uh, that is the only way this type of behavior is going to stop. On the other side of the break, the IRP5 are in-house with us tonight. We're going down a journey, folks, unprecedented. Why the appellate court has an image of purity when in reality they have chose to turn the other way away from the injustice suffered by the IRP-5. Not only the IRP-5, but in many cases that are sent to that court and courts all over the country, the appellate court sits and goes along with the corruption. This is AJC Radio. We'll be back with the IRP-5 after this. Hang on. We have a big problem, and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters. Our wives and our friends. It's called sexual assault, and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent, or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime. It's wrong. If I saw it happening and I was taught, you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I'd speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. actually pretty easy. You can go into any chat room and just start talking. Most of the girls are usually so insecure and 
desperate for attention from older guys is totally flattering. They're so much more mature and understanding than the guys might. Age actually works to my advantage. They like to brag to their friends that they're dating an older guy, so I just play along and pretend I'm really interested. interested in the same things I am. You can talk forever and really get to know someone without worrying about looks or whatever. That's the best thing about chatting. Chatting seems unthreatening to them, so they lower their guard. After a while, I start talking about how we're soulmates and how lucky we are to have found each other. Other people don't understand. I know what I'm doing. If you really care about each other, there's nothing wrong with me. Meeting them is the goal. Once I get them out of their house, well, that's when things get really interesting. Online predators know what they're doing. Do you? My nephew Joshua was 13 when he was killed in 2001. He was living with me at the time. He asked me, can I go by Billy's house? I thought, well, you know, what's the harm in that? You know, my mistake was I assumed that there was a parent home. I assumed his father had his weapon properly secured. The kid had removed the magazine, so the kid was sure that the gun was safe. And he, what he didn't know was there was a bullet chamber. Joshua had this fear of weapons because he lost his mother to gun violence. I think this kid really pulled the trigger to show Joshua that, that it was not dangerous the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life is to tell my mom we have to bury her grandson. The pain was so great, we just wanted to do something positive. And we also wanted to try to prevent families from experiencing the same pain that this put my family through. We began working with the End Family Fire campaign. Family Fire is the accidental shooting of a family member with a weapon that was improperly secured, improperly stored. It's a difficult conversation for people. You don't want to ask or say anything to your neighbors because you don't want to offend them. But there are important things we should know where are they going when they play? <laughs> what is the environment of that home? We have to understand that children are inquisitive, they're curious. And there's not one corner of the house that they haven't gone through. If you're a gun owner, you have to make sure your weapon is inaccessible. It will save the family from the pain and the trauma that my family's put through. Because once that happens, it's forever. And if I could prevent one family from experiencing that, then his life will have some purpose. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight. As we go down again in very unprecedented waters tonight, addressing the appellate court. Uh, and the appellate court here in Colorado 
Uh, but these issues that we will discuss tonight are all over the country. There is a built-in culture, uh, whether it's the state level or the federal level, that it is not to rock the boat or to offend uh, the brethren, if you will, uh, of the judicial system, the judicial process. But as a result, who hurts from that? Who hurts from that are the people trying to seek justice in cases that you know without a shadow of a doubt was simply unfair, where the Constitution of the United States, in which is the foundation for the judicial system, at least supposed to be, and the right to due process. The appellate court is set up for one purpose, to oversee the conduct of the courts doing trials where an individual's rights, a defendant's rights, have been violated, where fairness was not on the table, where one had an advantage over the other, where the outcome of the trial seemed prejudicial. That is the purpose, and that is the face, at least, that they put on appealing a conviction and in reality the numbers are very very low in the state of colorado for example only one percent of all cases submitted to the appellate court for the state of colorado only one percent of all cases submitted are overturned that is absolutely insanity dave your thoughts on that that's a ridiculous statistic. There are uh, judges can make mistakes. When a mistake is made, the appeals court is there to correct that mistake. When you see that only one percent of the cases are overturned, one of the cases that was overturned was the Nacho case. Well, he had money. So you look at things like that, and you see that the average person just has no justice available to them in the in the justice system. No, absolutely right. And uh, uh, David, as as we talk about this. Uh, until you have gone through this, as the RP5 have, uh, my wrongful conviction that took place, uh, I was one of the 1% where my case was overturned. But the consensus was, you, you, the, why, why bother writing an appeal? This is what I heard in prison. Uh, you, you have no need to do that because they're not going to overturn it. That's what I was, because that is the culture, because that is what people have seen. David, your thoughts on that? as we lay the foundation and get an opportunity to hear from all of the RP5 tonight on this. Well, I think people really need to consider uh, the fact, how many times have you actually heard of a federal prosecutor or a federal judge on television for misconduct? Now, it, does, it doesn't, you've never heard of that. I think most people can think of in their lifetime that they've never really heard about a federal judge or prosecutor unless typically it's in a high-profile political case, something may come out. Uh, are we to believe that all of these police officers with power will abuse their power, but federal judges and prosecutors never do? Uh, and actually, when when a just cause went to Washington, D.C., uh, the congressman seemed to be taken aback because you were actually challenging a federal judge and bringing them information about the wrongdoing of a federal judge. Pretty much, uh, if I recall, you guys told me that that's taboo. You don't say anything about a federal judge. So they're above the law, mm -hmm. and that's the way the system is. So all of the stuff you hear on television about, well, nobody's above the law, that is an outright lie. I think most Americans know that's a lie. They see things happen in politics. 
uh, and how politicians respond to things, a lot of people are above the law. And what you'll find as we as we get into the details, an appellate court has knowledge of actual innocence, right? And still finds a way to pro- prop up the prosecutor and make sure he doesn't lose, and the federal judge in the district court doesn't look bad. They're going to find a way to make sure you suffer the consequences of malicious acts nobody's ever held accountable in the federal justice system or state. Or uh, yeah, it's just almost non-existent. Yeah, no, for sure. And we're going to be sharing a a, a, a writing that was done by the Tenth Circuit, the Appellate Court, uh, regarding the judge in the IRP five case. Uh, actually, wrote a letter of concern. Uh, that they were concerned about the prejudice bias uh, about Christine Arguello, federal judge Christine Arguello, which is the judge that presided over the IRP5 case, and basically said, we have grave concerns that the statements she has made publicly in regards to white-collar crimes raise concern whether people coming into her courtroom would be treated fairly. But in the next breath of the writing, They say, well, we're not going to jump to conclusions. The conclusion is already there. You said it. We're going to get into that as well. So, uh, Clint, when you hear these type of things, I was was the one that actually believed that, okay, number one, I never believed I would be convicted for a crime you didn't commit. That's number one, because we're raised to believe that, that uh, because they they present this this perception or storyline to be if something happens, there's a level higher that you can appeal to, no pun intended, that will take a look and say, oh, this is a wrong thing. We need to write it. That's the perception. But the reality, based upon the statistics I just shared and the, the comment David made, and in this case with Arguello, in the last three weeks of this show, we have seen major violations. How that's overlooked, it's not overlooked. You simply turn a blind eye to it. You can't go through that. You can, no one can go through what we've gone through in the information and stuff in this case for the last three weeks and tell me something is not gravely wrong. And if we can see it, you're not going to convince me that a judge uh, who knows the law, who knows due process, uh, how they don't see it. Clint, your, your comments on that. It's, it's an amazing reality. And when you say uh, the face of it, it's actually a farce. The American people don't know about it until you experience it. Mm-hmm. If you don't experience it, you believe the farce. Right. And what the effect is of that modus operandi of the courts, this corruption modus operandi, is that they compete with the U.S. Constitution. They're competing with the provisions of the U.S. Constitution allowed, provided for its citizenry so that they can have a win at all costs. And if that 1% fluke, you know, they still have a 99% conviction rate and uphold it. And so that they're perfect. They do no wrong. Right. It, 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 it's a total sham. It's a total corrupt system. And it's absolutely so unfair that you would compete with my rights, my human rights that are afforded to me by the U.S. Constitution just so you can have your culture be maintained. Let me ask the RP5 guys a question. Thank you, Clint, for that comment. Dave Zapolo, uh, you growing up uh, with before having a uh, issue with the justice system and the wrong things that happened to you, 
what was your belief about the justice system and that to include the appellate system as well? My belief of the justice system was that they were looking out for you. If you got uh, caught up in something, whether you were wrong or you were wrongly brought in, they were still looking to make sure that your rights were being upheld, that you were being treated fairly, and whatever happened to you was a fair adjudication. And I found out very quickly that that was not true. That wasn't even close to being true. What if that, so after that, Dave, suffering what you guys have, uh, what did that leave you feeling as far as the justice system is concerned? What did, what, what did that leave with you? I felt that the justice system is really at odds with the people that they're supposed to be serving, that they're out to show that they are better than everybody else. We have a 98% conviction rate. Look at us. We're great. We're keeping you safe. Oh, you're keeping safe the people that you don't get in your, into your radar. As soon as somebody gets in your radar, you're after them no matter what is going on. Whether they're innocent, guilty, we want to do whatever we can, and we want to put you in prison for the smallest things. I, we've seen, even with this judge, we talked to people while we were in prison that uh, probation, the prosecution, and the defense all agreed that the person should have uh, probation and not go to prison, and she would turn around and say, no, that's not enough, five years. Wow. So even with the recommendation, they call them a pre-sentencing report or investigation where they come together and say, look, these guys have never been in trouble. Uh, let's do the right thing by these guys. And she made a point to become a dictator Absolutely. Uh, and do what she did. Well, you look at it, and when the prosecution says, no, they should ha- this person should have probation, and the judge turns around and says, no, that's not enough. They need to go to prison. That's a problem. No, it is. Kendrick, your thoughts, same question to you, your belief growing up. Uh, again, when you're never in trouble uh, or you're never accused of something, you don't have any run-ins to know what the system is, really. You, you never, I mean, you can look back at your life and think, man, I never thought about the system or because we were, not, we were never part of the system. What, what are your thoughts? How, how has that left you feeling? Well, initially i always thought you know there was there was people that were like wrongly wrongly convicted and arrested and like that but you thought that was still like television you know right. I, I never knew anybody personally because i didn't you know i didn't hang around people that were kind of breaking the law or whatever you know i didn't hear anything personally but you heard stories but it seemed like this distant thing that happened to somebody else right but when it when it happens when it happened to us the you saw the the, I can't remember. I think the callousness of it, and just the, the I'm not afraid because they, had, they it was done right in front of your face. No, there was no blinking, nothing. It was just, it was like the the, if you just could think of the the most cartoonish villain in a movie. That's that's what it seemed like. It's like how are you doing this right in our face, going against the Constitution, breaking the law, and not even doesn't bother you that you're just sending innocent people to prison next case you know so it's it's to me america should be very concerned because the average person the sad part is you don't know how bad it is until it until you're up under it and the average person thinks well you know the the there it's out for safety you're getting uh you're getting the right people off the street and that's not the case this this is this is politics this is a big business uh 
stopping small business. I mean, it's it's everything but justice, and that's something that people really need to be concerned about. No, oh, absolutely, Demetrius. Again, never uh, never having any issues with the law. We, you know, you grow up, you go to church, you you do you do kid things, you go to high school, you play sports, uh, you get a job, and you get your own place. I mean, these are the steps of adulthood. Uh, but never having an issue with the criminal justice system. How did this leave you? What was your belief initially, like we've asked the other RP5, and when you saw that was not the case, how did that leave you feeling? Uh, the best way to, to describe it, Mont, is I heard a term in when we were in prison that it was like you woke up out of the Matrix, the movie. It's like this is the real world. This is reality. The reality is there is no justice. Before that, as you said, uh, David would say all the time when we talk to guys in prison, we don't commit crimes. We've never thought to commit crime. That's not what we do. We, we started a business, and we thought that our dream would be a reality. But the reality is, was we woke up, and we woke up to a nightmare. And I'm telling you, Mont, as you know, this is the most heinous thing that you would, as you said, a 98% conviction rate, 99% on the appellate side. Steph Curry, the guys in the sports world aren't even that good. No one's that good, 99%. So you know our justice system is broken, and again, it's just it's a nightmare. We woke up in this nightmare, and we're still fighting to clear our names. That's, that's the reality of it. I'll guarantee you the Matrix was a, a blockbuster uh, but I'll tell you right now, this is not a production. This is not someone that we're reading a script from. This is reality that affected the lives of these men. David Banks, uh, you know as well as I know, coming up, uh, mom and dad together, uh, 34 years. You got your brothers and sisters. We go down to, a, to the park. We play basketball. We're living just a life, and then we grow. We believe in something that was instilled in us. Uh, from the times that we were kids. You just never thought in a million years is how you stay out of jail, you don't break the law. So, but then a new chapter starts where you don't break the law and you go to jail. Give me your thoughts, David, coming up, what we believe, what you believed individually as one of the IRP5, and how did that leave you, and what did you feel when this chapter began to unfold and that nightmare happened? Yeah, and I, I think we grew up in a strict Christian home, and like Demetrius said, it's not even, it doesn't even cross your mind to uh, go out and just decide, I'm going to break the law. I had friends of mine growing up, uh, and even in my 20s, uh, when I lived in uh, Philadelphia, and guys would say, well, we're going to, we're going to go do this. I said, Sorry, I I don't do that sort of stuff. I'm not going to prison. I'm not going to jail for you or anybody else. I can't count the times I said that. I depart departed from anybody who even thought about committing a crime or did something that that looked as if it was uh, criminal in nature. I just didn't want to take any risk with my freedom. Then we find ourselves running a business, trying to do something positive. Uh, for the country, trying to live the American dream, uh, all the things you hear growing up, and you find out that's all uh, you, that's all a farce. You're really not entitled to be able to do that. And you're entitled to a point, but there are powers uh, that be that says 
well, you can run a landscaping company. You can do this software. That's not for you, black boys. You guys got to go find find another uh, area of business, uh, especially in in the in the arena we were playing where there's nothing but 800 pound guerrilla defense contractors and systems integrators. They did not want to let you in. Everybody wants all the money. We were just trying to do good business, but to grow up not even thinking about a crime and then to have your business rated and be accused of a crime is something that is so unbelievable until you really can't put it into words. But as you look at the system, the entire system, and we see it uh, with what's going on with police officers, this is a crony, crony, crony-based system. Everybody in blue typically protects the other people in blue. They always want to give the, the law enforcement uh, judges and prosecutors the benefit of the doubt No matter what the conduct looks like No matter what the evidence is uh, We give them the benefit of the doubt You're these lowly black guys These are Harvard graduates These are attorneys uh, You guys are guilty um, Or you wouldn't be here No, no, absolutely right We're going to get into that And let me make this point clear From a just called AJC Radio It is, we know without a shadow of a doubt uh, there are officers in this country that deserve the highest level of respect. Uh, those that honor the badge, that are there to serve and protect. When I was a little kid, that's what I saw in a police car in Oklahoma. To serve and protect, I never forgot that. That the officers, when, when you had show and tell in elementary school, what do you want to be when you grow up? A police officer, a fireman, these things, that was a respectable thing. And I, I, again, let me be clear. Uh, there are great officers that have given their lives, uh, their families, the sacrifices that have been given. We take nothing away from that. We take nothing from the judges. Uh, there are some good judges out there. Uh, and I've, been in, I've actually stood before judges as an advocate here in El Paso County that these judges were to be admired. So make no mistake about it. We're talking we have to deal with the bad and the wrong as well as the good. We can't have it one side. But let us be clear in our position that in any industry, you're going to have people that are bad, that don't care, that have no ethical uh, uh, gauge in order to do the right thing. Uh, and we respect and we, uh, we, we give uh, homage really and honor to those officers, judges, even prosecutors that have chosen to do the right thing in attorneys. So let, let us be clear on that. But again, we're addressing those that have abused the system. We don't have a choice. David? One final point I'd like to make is there are officers that would like to come forward. This system as a whistleblower will destroy those men's lives. The system is, uh, itself is so reinforced with you don't go against the system. And that's or, from officers, David. That's from officers all the way to, up to the judges' chamber. To the judges. Because yeah. if you go against the system, you're forced. And these judges and police and some prosecutors who want to do the right thing are forced into, uh, forced into not doing the right thing. Because if they decide they're going to blow the whistle, and everybody's seen government whistleblowers uh, in the past, they will come after you and they will destroy you for embarrassing them and, and putting, putting their name out there as doing something wrong. No matter how wrong it was they did, uh, you're not going to say anything. It's, 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 it's the anti-snitch uh, mentality. You cannot snitch on another police officer, another judge, 
or or another prosecutor, or are you are you going to be a pariah uh, in, in in the field you work in? Well, people die behind those actions. Uh, this is why the culture is so difficult to change because the consequences of doing the right thing in a corrupt culture, the price is very high to people. And that is a disgrace that we even have to have that conversation that in order to do the right thing, I have to weigh the consequences of my family. How many people maybe have been threatened by law enforcement or judges? Well, if you don't do, if you say anything, uh, I know where your little boy goes to school. That, that this is not TV. This is reality. Well, I know about your family. Hey, you can. Be, I know where you work. I can make a call and you can lose your job. This is reality. It is a sad disgrace. But until we believe that the right thing rises above, perhaps the consequences of doing right and having integrity, our, our system is in danger, a very dangerous position. The other side of the break, we lay the foundation for the appellate court, statements that have been made, writings that have been done, and the avoidance of topics and issues in the appeal of the RP5 case. You don't want to miss it. This is AJC Radio. Feel free to dial in 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. The RP5 and the appellate court looking at way from injustice. We'll be right back. Her to the chain. It was just a joke. We're not friends. Why are you talking to me? You started it. It's so gross. Lame. Loser. Weirdo. I've said and done things before that I'm not proud of. Just as I've been hurt by others. The thing is, this, this is not who I am. And it's definitely not who I want to be. I don't want to be cruel. I don't want to spread gossip. I don't want to be a body shaver. I don't want to exclude anyone. I don't want to make anyone feel lonely. Left out. Hurt. We can create a kinder world. It's not that hard. We just need to stop. Take a moment and consider others before we speak. And before we act, be more. Be more. Be more. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that. Life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with, especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation. You can help in the fight against wrongful convictions call a just cause today 1-855-529-4252 we seek justice for the children as they go to bed at night and mom's not there dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe not because dad or mom did anything wrong because justice could not be found. Join us for the children. 
for they truly are our future. Because I'm 16, I can't drive at night. Because I'm 16, I can't work past 10 o'clock on a school night. Because I'm 16, I can't get a cell phone contract without my parents. Because I'm 16, I can't get a flu shot without my mother's consent. At 16, I'm not old enough to watch an R-rated movie alone. Because I'm 16, I can't buy a lottery ticket. I can't vote. I can't drink. I can't smoke. I can't join the military. Because I'm 16, I can't sit on a jury, but I can be tried as an adult. I can get a lifetime criminal record. If I get arrested, my parents don't have to be notified. Because I'm 16, my mother had to sign this consent form so that I could participate in this video. But I can go to an adult prison. But I can go to Rikers Island. But I can be sent to Attica. My name is Michael Corriero. I was a judge for 28 years in the criminal courts of the state of New York. New York is one of only two states in the entire nation that automatically tries children as young as 16 as adults. We need to change that. Last week, my father sent me to my room. Next week, a judge could sentence me to an adult prison. We need to judge children as children. It's time to raise the age of criminal responsibility in New York. Good morning, students, and welcome to Career Day. I hope you're excited to hear about all the great things you can do when you grow up. Hi everyone, I'm Emily. I'm super excited to introduce my dad because he's my hero. When I was little, my dad was away a lot. But I was okay with that because he was doing this really important work, driving ambulances in Iraq. Now he's at home, which is great for me because I get to see him every day now. And he's still the biggest hero I know because he tells all the ambulances and the fire engines where to go and rescue people when there's an emergency. I'm so proud of him. He's awesome. He's my dad. If your service-connected disability prevents you from continuing in your civilian career, Voc Rehab offers counseling, training with a living allowance, education, and other services to help prepare you for your next mission. I stand for individuality. I stand for peace. I stand for diversity. I stand for dignity. I stand for respect. I stand for fairness. Red, yellow, black, white. We're all the same color. When you turn out the light. Almost every day in the news, we hear stories about innocent people who are returning home after spending years in prison for crimes they did not commit. What you may not know is that their problems don't end once the limelight fades. For many wrongfully convicted individuals don't receive a penny for the injustice that they face. Take the case of Floyd Bledsoe. He spent 16 years in the Kansas prison for a murder and rape he did not commit. And while Floyd was eventually exonerated, he lost everything his family, his farm, and decades worth of income. 
Unfortunately, Floyd's story is not unique. Kansas, along with 17 other states, doesn't have a law to compensate wrongfully convicted individuals for the injustices they suffered. And in states with compensation laws, many of those are woefully inadequate. We owe it to all the men and women in all 50 states to provide fair compensation to those who've suffered these injustices. Join me in urging our lawmakers to do the right thing by the wrongfully convicted. Go to innocenceproject.org to find out how you can help. children die of heat stroke after being forgotten in a vehicle in 70 degree weather it takes only minutes for the inside of a car to heat up like an oven at 104 degrees heat stroke begins followed by loss of consciousness yeah. Two an hour and a half or so forever. Look before you lock. Brought to you by Kids in Cars. In the fabric of America, they are the toughest threads. One of the first things they learned was the code that every service member lives by. Leave no one behind. Now all of us need to live by it too. Because some veterans are being left behind. 20 of them take their own lives every day. Learn how to be there for a veteran at BeThereForVeterans.com. Honor the code. Be there. Leave no one behind. Hey, guys. I'm Jordan Sparks. I'm Chase Crawford. Hey, what's up? It's Usher. Hi, I'm Rachel Dolphin. I'm Hayden Christensen. I'm Peyton Manning. Hey, we're Fall Out Boy. I'm Dan Archuleta. I'm Corbin Blue. I'm Kristen Bell. And we're the Jonas Brothers. Do something good for your community. Reuse bags and bottles and always recycle. Help us collect a million pounds of food. Help people prepare for natural disasters. Do something about homelessness. Anyone could be a rock star in their community. So then do something. Do something. Do something. Do something. Visit dosomething.org to find out how. You may be wondering tonight, how in the world does the appellate court of the United States sanction through their actions and lack thereof, the abuse of power in America's courts? That is a question we ask. That is a, a really important question. How does that happen? And as it was alluded to earlier, the appellate court seems to protect their own. Just the facts. Not an assumption, the statistics uh, bring us to the same conclusion. Tonight, as we deal with the RP5 and the appeal of that case, but we add a wrinkle to that as well tonight. Lawana Banks Clark, who is no longer with us, passed away in November of 2018, but prior to that, she also suffered a blow by the appellate court. And David Banks, if you can, lay the foundation for our listeners into the RP5 
we're going to come to you as we get into this discussion. David, go ahead. Now, LaWanna Clark uh, was called. She's my sister, LaWanna Banks Clark. She was called before uh, the grand jury in the IRP-5 case in 2007. And she was subpoenaed by the government uh, for reasons unknown. Uh, Clark was subpoenaed before the grand jury where the government prosecutor asked her 285 questions. After testifying, the government indicted her on three counts of lying to the grand jury. Now, it doesn't really make sense. It's highly improbable that Clark would lie on three occasions and tell the truth on 282 other occasions. That just doesn't make sense. Now, the government accused her of lying in part uh, that she lied about withdrawing money from a bank account on which she was an authorized signer. Now, what reason would you lie about withdrawing money from a bank account where you're an authorized signer knowing fully well that the government would have records of that particular transaction? Now, Clark told the grand jury and the prosecutor during questioning at the grand jury that the withdrawals were made in proxy or by proxy by her sister, Yolanda Walker. Um, The government had an obligation to say, okay, if that's what Clark told the grand jury, well, let's, let's verify the veracity of her statement. Let's, pull the video from the bank and determine if Clark is telling the truth. The bank would have quickly sent over the video and say, no, she she didn't withdraw the transaction, and they would have saw her sister. Yolanda was was there withdrawing the money uh, in proxy for her. As she was allowed to. Yeah, there's nothing illegal about that. And couldn't they ask Yolanda Walker? I mean, send the FBI agents to get an interview or statement. Well, David and Kendrick, to that point, Yolanda Walker was there at the proceedings to testify yes. to the fact, and the attorney failed to do his job. Ultimately, that was the case. But if you get down to the brass tacks, uh, Luana went to trial, was convicted, was exonerated on two counts, and convicted on the count of lying about withdrawing the money so, from the bank account. So perjury. Perjury, yeah. In okay. other words, yeah, lying to the grand jury. That's at least that's the way they are uh, right. making false statements to a grand jury. Now, Luana Clark during trial, because I, I was there, my and my other sister Yolanda was there, told her attorney that look, Yolanda's ready to testify, and then we even expressed that we should get a handwriting expert because the government had presented withdrawal slips claiming that it was LaWanna Clark's signature. On her own account. On her own account. So he said, so what the government did, they didn't, they didn't do handwriting uh, analysis either to make that determination. The attorney, Rich, uh, Rick, Rick Kornfeld of Denver, told, well, no, don't worry about it. Uh, this case is going well. You'll find out more about Rick Kornfeld, but he said the case is going well. There was no need. Uh, he felt like he had it in the bag. Well, Luana got convicted on that count. After the conviction, she we went and had handwriting expert 
one that was used by the Colorado U.S. Attorney or by the U.S. Attorney's Office, not certain of Colorado, but by used by the DOJ to do the handwriting analysis on the bank withdrawal slip that the jury said her signature appeared to be on that slip. Both Lawana Clark and her sister Yolanda provided handwriting exemplars to Judith Housley, which is the name of the handwriting expert. Ms. Housley determined with a degree of scientific certainty that it was not Lawana Clark's signature on those bank uh, withdrawal slips and indeed was her sister Yolanda's handwriting. So, in other words, Lawana had told the truth to the grand jury. Had, that, had, had those facts been presented in the appeal of the case? Yes, they were. Now, Clark, she first requested it of Judge Arguello mm-hmm. and then had to appeal it to the appellate right. court once it was rejected by Judge Arguello. Now, a motion was filed under Rule 33 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedures to get a new trial based on that evidence, that evidence which, is, which, which they would uh, consider newly discovered evidence. Right. Now, according to Rule 33 on the Legal Information Institute, a defendant's motion, upon a defendant's motion, the court may vacate any judgment and grant a new trial if the interest of justice so requires. So we're talking about justice. We were talking about you can't get justice in the system. So Judge Arguello was aware that Lawana Clark had told the truth. And... Uh, one of our attorneys specifically, uh, I think Ken could talk about what he said. Ken, what did uh, your attorney well, say? Yeah, at my time, it was, I was, you know, we were talking about the case. Uh, and we were telling, I was telling my attorney, Tom Goodread, you know, but we have evidence that, you know, that this is not her handwriting. We have, you know, evidence with the court reporter. He was like, it doesn't matter that you have evidence. He goes, she's going to do some jail time. Okay, hold on. It doesn't, this is coming from an officer of the court. Right to the court. He's so he is saying, you made the statement, Kendrick. Uh, we have evidence to prove. Yeah, and I'm talking to him because I'm 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 ecstatic, thinking, you know what? Uh, once I tell him we got evidence, he's gonna he's gonna agree with me. This is my attorney. He goes, it doesn't matter. She got evidence. What else did he say? He said she's gonna do some jail time. That that's all he said. He said she's gonna do some jail time. It doesn't matter. With proof of innocence, she's going to do jail time. Dave, give me your thoughts on that one. Well, one of the things you have to look at is. First of all, the fact that she was doing going to do jail time for perjuring herself, supposedly, which right. she didn't do, against the grand jury. Well, you have instances that you see across the United States of people lying to a grand jury, lying to Congress, and being found guilty because they actually did it. They never even went to prison. They were put on probation. Right. They put Lawana Clark in prison for six months, having the evidence that she was innocent. Judge Arguello should have looked at that and overturned the case immediately. Well, the statement that is made, even if, say, for let's just go here, if a jury comes back with a conviction, it is in the, it is in the authority of the judge to say, in the interest of justice, I'm going to set aside the said conviction. In the interest of justice, because I witnessed this trial, Judge Arguello had the opportunity, still at the end of all of this, to do it right. 
and say clearly, we appreciate the jurors for their work. However, in the interest of justice, it is my belief that which has been seen here, I cannot allow a conviction to stand, a, a finding of guilty. That is every judge on every bench, federal or state, has that power. And they can implement that at any given time. The danger here, when the appellate court had an opportunity to right the ship, what was their response, David, to the fact since this was presented to the appellate court? Evidence. See, evidence, clear evidence, if the jury hears that LaWanna Clark, and by an expert who's known all over the country in federal cases as an expert in handwriting uh, analysis. LaWanna Banks-Clark never goes to prison for six months. But the pattern of Judge Arguello is to ensure a conviction and to do what she did. And then you have the pattern of the appellate court, who not only did this to LaWanna Clark, he did it to the IRP-5. They did it to the IRP-5 as well. Go ahead, David. What that shows you, it says in the interest of justice, these judges Judge Arguello at the district court level, as well as Judges Baldock, Hart, and Holmes with the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, had no interest in justice. So let's uh, let's start right there. They the, the the ball was kicked to the appellate court, the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, to make a determination. Okay, do we as the appellate court, with full knowledge that this woman is innocent and that handwriting uh, evidence has exonerated her, do we have any interest in justice in overturning this case? No. The, the, the appellate court relied on a due diligence prong claiming that, well, Clark should have brought this evidence forward during the trial. Well, the attorney at that time made it impossible and, 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 and discouraged us from bringing it to trial. But, but you, they, still had the, they still had the option to say in the interest of justice, we are going to overturn LaWanna Clark's case. They have a thing that they call in, this, in the criminal justice system called harmless error. That, that term is used consistently in, a, in appeal filings where the appellate court will come back and say, well, that was harmless error. The issue here, this was more than a harmless error. This was once the knowledge came to the judge. Of, this is something that is substantial. This is something that tilts the case completely. It's a, that's a difference. It's not some... Just a phrase that we use that was harmless. Harmless error is implemented in the event it would not have affected the outcome of the trial one way or the other. That is not the case with LaWanna Clark with that information. Go ahead, David. But I'm going to quote directly from the Tenth Circuit's opinion. They claim that the handwriting evidence, and I quote, was not likely to result in an acquittal. That's impossible. impossible. That is impossible. Clint, your thoughts? This case uh, that we're talking about with Iwana Clark is such a low bar of a test for 
is the court interested in justice? Just like David is, is elaborating on, especially at the appeals level, does the judge have any integrity? Is the judicial process, uh, does it have any integrity? Is there any officer in the court that is outraged that these procedures uh, are, are going against a fair trial? This is such a low bar the, the, until think- if they don't pass this, then you know that you can't bring any matter that's anything higher than, oh, perhaps you lied. Well, here's the problem. If a expert in the federal court system who's known all over the country, her, her resume speaks for itself, has testified in dozens of trials as an expert, how in the world, this is what it makes me believe, did the three judges even read the appeal? How can you say the fact LaWanna Clark's, what was in question was her honesty or she perjured herself? The handwriting expert confirms truth automatically. This is not her signature. You have a witness in the hallway, Yolanda Walker, that will testify to the fact that I did the withdrawal in proxy of LaWanna Banks Clark with permission. You don't call her to the stand as her defense attorney. How is it even possible that the appellate court, those three judges, can come back in good conscience and say, we don't believe this would have changed the outcome. The entire case of LaWanna Clark was based upon this act because without the action of her withdrawing, you are not in court. You are not charged. That is the most ridiculous opinion statement with a case that is so blatantly wrong. Dave, give me your thoughts on that, and then I'm going to come to you, David. One of the things that I was thinking about, and this is my opinion, but I think that this is pretty on point, is you look at that grand jury. That grand jury would not indict the IRP-5. That grand jury found no evidence that we, we had committed a crime. Now, they, the, the government, was probably really upset about that. So they decided we have to do something that will put pressure on these guys, and they decided we're going to go after LaWanna Clark. We're going to put her in prison, and these guys are going to turn around and say, please, please don't do that. We'll say anything you want us to say. And when we didn't do that, they made sure she was going to prison. Because I keep looking back at how many times we have heard that such and such a person lied to Congress, lied to the grand jury, lied to an FBI agent, and they had never had any problems before with the law, just like LaWanna Clark, and they got probation. There was proof that they lied. They got probation. LaWanna Clark gets put in prison for six months, and they wanted 18 months. And with evidence. With evidence that she didn't do anything. It's kind of like this, David. I'll come to you here in a moment. It's kind of like this. I know of a case... uh, uh, here in Colorado, where a guy was convicted to two life sentences for the, for the killing of one person and assaulting another with a weapon. Two days before the jury came back with a conviction, the gun was found at another person's house who actually had the gun. He still went to prison 
He has two life sentences without the possibility of parole. When presented to the court, wait a minute. He wasn't in prison yet. We have the gun, Your Honor. And it was at a totally different location in no relation to this gentleman. It was ignored. He, he exhausted all of his appeals. He's in prison right now, has been down for 25 years. Because someone, and that, as we talked tonight about the appellate court, why are you on the bench to appeal anything when you do not have the integrity these are clear, blatant violations of law and due process. And then we ask the question, why don't we believe in this system? LaWanna Banks-Clark, as a result of her injustice, went to the grave at the age of 56 from the stress and the undoing tiredness and fight for justice that she suffered as a result of going to a prison for six months that she never should have went, being whipped from her family. Why? Because three judges on an appellate board or bench said, we don't believe it would have changed the outcome of the case. That is a write-down false statement. And if you make that statement, you did not read one inch of that appeal because it is crystal clear. David, go ahead. Now, finally, judges are these appellate court judges are supposed to respect precedent. Now, uh, the Supreme Court, this is Justice Stevens of the United States Supreme Court. He said this in an opinion. It seems to me obvious that if a wrongly convicted person were to produce proof of actual innocence, no government interest would be sufficient to justify continued punitive detention. Justice Stevens went on to say an individual's interest in his physical liberty is one of constitutional significance. Mm. Nobody, everybody pays lip service to the Constitution. That's, you hear it all the time, the Constitution, the Constitution. These judges respect cronyism. They don't respect the Constitution. And as we get further into what occurred in our case, the fix was in. Uh, the cabal was assembled from the district court to the prosecutor to the appellate court that we were not to be uh, freed, that we're going to be sent to prison. The Tenth Circuit, there's evil there that does not sleep if you can actually do this to someone. There's no way. Go ahead, Dave. You had a comment. Well, you had evidence that showed that she was innocent. That's like saying that somebody has been convicted of murder. The person that they supposedly killed walks into the courtroom and says, I'm not dead. Well, that wouldn't have changed the outcome of the case. Exactly. And a very, very good analogy. Demetrius, go ahead. Well, and again, to Dave Zerpolo's point, this was all a shot against us. We, I was there. We were all there supporting Luana Clark during this time in 2010. And you saw that the court-appointed attorney was in on this, uh, Rich Cornfield. We asked them vehemently, Do, will this make a difference? No. And we believe, you know, again, we, were, we had no um, experience with the federal system, and we deferred to his uh, expertise. But now we find out 
later that all of these people from the, the court-appointed attorneys, they're all in with Matthew Kirsch. They're all in with the DOJ, the U.S. Attorney's Office. Why? Because they want to put place at the table. As David alluded to, it's all of the uh, of cronyism. They want to support one another because why? In the future, they might be able to help me get a job or to further my career on the federal bench or uh, put in a recommendation. No. That's one of the reasons why we were done. Well, we'll further your career on the backs of the innocent. Exactly. Kendrick, your thoughts? It's sad because I sat during the oral arguments uh, during Juana's appeal, and I was, there was like maybe like three or four of the cases before uh, they heard Luana's case, and you're and you and I'm watching the the appellate judges, and you know they were making logical decisions, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, by the time okay these guys are fair, once they get to Juana, it's going to be you know hands down. I it was obvious you clearly saw. The whole countenance of all those justice judge, judges' faces just changed. They were like irritated. They were like, "You haven't even heard the case yet. You haven't even heard what's going on." So you were thinking, "Well, maybe they're irritated with the prosecution for bringing this, you know, frivolous case, frivolous case to them." And I remember one of the court judges, one of the judges was uh, was grilling. Uh, I think it was Kirsch, and he was he was like, um, "Well, he goes, well, you got this trial now. Now, now there's hand, he goes now there's handwriting evidence, and he goes, and so." Curse uh, was trying to answer and said, "Well, yeah." And he was stuttering. He goes, "Oh," and so he was like, "Well, uh, well, we'll review it." And you think, "Well, he's going to get on. He's going to get on Curse, right?" But it, it did nothing. And so it's like this was all theater. So you're you're sitting there, you're you're putting on this show like you know that you're just so upset and and this shit and then you go back and you make a decision and you rule against the one. And, and the worst thing that I ever that was really really bad was uh, Rich Cornfield came in. And we're all sitting on our side of the court. He decides to come in and sits over on the side of the prosecution. The defense. The defense. I'm like, this is your case. This, this, is, this is the case you were supposed to send Lamar Clark in, and you go sit with the prosecution? Not, not only that, Lamont, he gave us a little snide grin, a little smirk, looked at us uh, like, yeah, and then we went over to sit with the prosecutor who was arguing against Lawana Clark being uh, uh, freed uh, or have her case overturned. This is, what's his name? Rick Cornfield. Mr. Cornfield, and we're going to send this show directly to your inbox. It, you are a disgrace to the judicial system. This is, let me tell you something. When your defense attorney, you know, you can be in traffic court. There's two sides. The defense sends to the left or the right. There is no anybody behind the prosecution's table or people from the district attorney's office or from the government of the United States. Or in the, in the case of public defenders, and you have a, a court-appointed attorney, all of them are behind in support of the defense. This guy blatantly walks behind the government and has the nerve to look at the RP5 with a snide look. I mean, but look at this way. You lost your case, and you want to keep the loss? That, that, there's no defense attorney that does that. You want the appeals court to say, yeah, there was a mistake, and I didn't lose this case because I'm trying to get clients, so I need to win cases. And but this, you come in and sit with the government like in hopes that I hope they keep that conviction that I lost. That's crazy. He should be disbarred. Disbarred. I don't know where he got his law degree from. 
He served her up to the government. The fix was in between him and the prosecutor. This is what goes on in the United States justice. Well, perhaps his degree was manufactured on the Internet. You can get, a, you can get an actual law degree for about twenty nine ninety nine uh, on the Internet. This conduct speaks to that. The basics of law and due process. You know, they say there are certain steps in the system that are the basics. Stick to the basics. The basics are this. I defend my client to the best of my ability and defend their position as innocent if that's what they have done. Mr. Cornfield blatantly violated due process, blatantly with intent to ensure a conviction of his client. That is a recipe to be disbarred. William, your thoughts? You know, as I sit here, you, you just listen to this and you see how much back scratching is going on in this whole system. I mean, they cover for each other. It doesn't matter. It's a facade. You have a system there. You think, I mean, several of the guys said here, you know, before this happened, they thought they would get a fair shake with the judicial system. And you realize people are corrupt. A system, there's no system out there that's not corrupt. So why would you think? I can go through the system, okay, I have a right to an appeal. Someone would hear my case. Someone would actually look at everything that is outlined and say, okay, wait a minute, hold on. There's something wrong here. No, instead of them pointing to one of their peers and saying, judge such and such, you, you ruled wrong. You didn't look at this evidence correctly and overturn it. They're going to uphold the lower court. And that tells you. So, so where is the hierarchy in our system? You can't go up and expect somebody else to give you a fair shake and go up from there. That even tells you all the way up to the Supreme Court. You may not get a fair shake. You probably will not get a fair shake. If you have to appeal all the way up, they're going to be more likely to watch out for their own, cover their own, so then the little guy right here never gets a chance. He can voice all day long, and it's sad. Well, uh, the bottom line here is that the appellate court to uphold, you might as well take the appellate court down. You might as well if, not even have if, that. What do you have an appellate court for? You, you don't, you don't have it. Statistically, you are failing to do your job. Statistically. The numbers don't add up. Well, it's kind of like if you're in a sales job, you got a quota. They're not even close to the to any type of quota of justice, and I say that loosely because there's no quotas. But when you have a one percent turnover rate, you're not telling me out of the thousands of cases. You so, so out of out of a thousand cases that come before your court, you overturn a hundred. A hundred. But, but, you know, you listen to this, and it takes me back to the point where I was talking to that one juror, and the juror was asking me, you know, we were wondering where, where the defense was. The juror is literally looking at, me, looking at me, we're eye to eye, and he's puzzled. He was puzzled by this whole thing. We, and this was a conversation that was going on in the chambers. Now, you listen to this, and you say, even with everything on the line at the appeals level, there was never going to be a fair shake. Well, and that's that's the uh, that's how egregious this is, and yet they have us to believe as a society 
that the system we have, if I hear anybody make that statement to me, we have the best system in the world. I promise you we're coming back with an answer. The best system in the world and you to the highest level of the court. Endorse. When you don't, when you don't overturn a conviction that is blatantly clear, like it was with new evidence argued in an appellate motion, and you say it would not have changed the outcome, the entire case was based upon the new evidence that came. The entire case. So how am I supposed to trust? How am I supposed to trust? The system, period. From the time the handcuffs are put on until the process of going to prison and appealing your case until all your post-conviction relief has been exhausted, people are suffering the injustice at its highest level. Ladies and gentlemen, feel free to dial into the show, 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. I got a pretty good feeling that they're going to be a part two of this show uncovering the mask of deception worn by the appellate courts all across the United States, namely tonight, the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Sergeant Michelle Garcia served meritoriously in Iraq and has the medal to prove it. Soon after leaving the Navy, Lieutenant Chris Scott found a job, a home, and started a family of his own. Corpsman Richard Stokely took the skills he learned in Vietnam and put them to good use as a paramedic. But soon after leaving the military, each of these veterans fell on hard times and faced homelessness. Even after Michelle lost all her savings, even after Chris wasn't able to pay his mortgage, and even after Richard battled alcoholism for years, they each reached out for help when they needed it most. A simple phone call put them in touch with a trained professional from the Department of Veterans Affairs. That call got Michelle a place to stay until she could afford one of her own, put Chris in touch with employment assistance, and found Richard a substance abuse program. These veterans are success stories not only for how they were able to help others while serving their country, but for how they were able to let others help them. If you know of or are a veteran in need, make the call. There's a lot of mud when it rains here, and it makes it really hard to find food. There are car bombs every day. My mom worries about me when I go out. Every time I hear the alarm bell go off in school, I think it's an air raid. Sometimes I have nightmares about it. A lot of houses in our neighborhood have been destroyed. I like to close my ears and sing songs whenever the bombs come close. My dad says we have to leave, which makes me scared. I'm worried our new neighbors won't like us. What if they don't understand our religion? Because they don't speak the language, it might be hard for me to make friends. But I know it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be worth it. I just want my family to be safe. But these are not my words. These are not my words. These are not my words. The United States houses more human beings in prisons than any other country in the world. This is true whether you're counting total numbers or in relation to population size. 
This wasn't always the case. The number of prisoners in the U.S. began to rise dramatically in the 1970s. So what changed in America compared to other countries? While there are several competing theories, a look at the data reveals that a significant part of the prison growth in the last 40 years has been driven by the war on drugs. Here's the data. By 1980, there were over 315,000 prisoners in state and federal facilities. 57% were violent offenders. 30% were property violators, such as thieves or those convicted of fraud. 5.5% of inmates were in for public order and other miscellaneous offenses. And the remaining 7.5% were nonviolent drug law violators. Ten years later, the drug war had grown, and the total American prison population had more than doubled to over 740,000 inmates. The proportion of offenders in each type of crime had also changed dramatically. The most growth occurred in the nonviolent drug offender population, which grew to a significant 24%. And this last statistic actually understates the influence of the drug war on prison populations. Many studies have shown that drug prohibition causes violent crime by leading to the formation of gangs and cartels. And thus, it is safe to say that the number of violent criminals under prohibition is higher than it would otherwise be. From 1990 to 2000, the drug-driven population growth continued. By 2000, the total prison population had almost doubled again to over 1.3 million inmates. And by 2010, the prison population was up to 1.6 million people. The growth has started to settle and even decline in recent years, but the proportions of offenses are retaining their post-1990 levels. America's unique methods of enforcing drug prohibition seem to parallel its unique prison population. And one has to ask, is our country really better off with so many nonviolent drug offenders behind bars? Are drug users likely to be cured from addiction by being locked up? Has locking up dealers and users lessened the demand for drugs? Certainly, the effects on overall usage could not be called a success. And yet we spend billions every year on this war and lock up hundreds of thousands. Surely, there must be a less costly approach to addressing drug use in America. police officer who shot and killed a man. When I first saw the Oscar Graham footage, like a lot of people here in Oakland, I was outraged. As soon as I heard about it and I went online and I seen what had happened, tears came down my eyes. It was something that was very alarming as a police officer and as a citizen of Oakland. It was like such a blatant murder. You have a city in trauma. Anyone that's seen that and looks at it is in trauma. My hope is that people will express their concern with police brutality, but they will do so in constructive ways that don't include violence. We cannot perpetrate this cycle of harm and violence in this community. Because we do have to live here and they terrorize the city and it's only going to make it worse for us. They killed our young you can protest, you can try to make it change, but there is a positive way you can do it. And make sure we let the police know and they're aware that stuff ain't right out here. We're trying to fix it. In a way that is about using your voice for justice and making Oakland a safer place for everyone to live and get along as one. Violence is not just Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice.
Well, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight. I'll tell you what, uh, this is some conversation and dialogue that is most needed uh, in our criminal justice system today. Tonight, we've been addressing the IRP-5 as well as Luana Banks-Clark and the injustice suffered at the appellate level. Not only did we have the injustice in uh, Federal Judge Christine Arguello's court uh, at every possible turn, it continued as the search for justice continued at the appellate level, thinking in some way, surely, those that oversee the lower court will call out the injustice suffered in the proceedings uh, concerning Luana Clark and David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zapolo, and Clint Stewart, known as the IRP-5. But I tell you what, we were sadly disappointed. Ultimately, the conviction stood without any consideration, without any acts of fairness and due process. As if we simply just turned on a switch light and said we simply do not care. Refusing to even address issues raised in appeal, including the handwriting expert for Lawana Clark and all of the things that took place in the IRP-5 case. We want to thank you for joining us tonight. Feel free to dial in 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. We do know a lot of our listeners are, are, are listening online. That's fine. Uh, but tell your neighbors, tell your friends, tell everybody about the broadcast of this show and what's being done to bring justice to not only the IRP-5, but to all cases possible that have suffered the injustice that these young men have, as well as uh, our sister who has passed away two years ago, Lawana Clark. Again, I believe as a result of the injustice, sending this young lady to prison for six months, never, ever an issue uh, with the criminal justice system. Uh, died at the age, tender age of 56 years old, and I and I will tell you this: take it as you will. The injustice suffered uh, by Lawana Banks Clark's brother David Banks, uh, as well as herself, played a significant role in the taking of her life uh, from a stroke in the brain that took her from us. And I'll tell you right now, to every person that sanction this behavior and this conduct of the courts, uh, you are culpable in the death of Luana Banks-Clark and should be held accountable. David, go ahead as we continue to lay the foundation again uh, with the appellate courts of 10th Circuit. So now everybody can see that this clearly looks conspiratorial. You can't have this sort of the things that happened to Luana Clark where there were violations of law at every level with people who took an oath to uphold the law and uphold the Constitution. So I think we can conclude that there is some sort of conspiracy. You say conspiracy theory? No, the facts show that this was conspiratorial in nature. Um, now, getting into one of the areas in the IRP-6 case was denial of an expert witness. Now, Americans are aware that in criminal cases, prosecutor call, prosecutors call witnesses before a jury to prove their charges against uh, criminal defendants. Now, to guarantee due process, 
and a fair trial and to ensure that prosecutors don't have an unfair advantage to convict the innocent, the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution grants defendants the right to call witnesses in their favor to disprove the government's charges or cast reasonable doubt in the minds of jurors that they committed a crime. Now, in our case, uh, they deprived us of our expert witness. Uh, the, The central charge in the government's case is that we made false statements that induced staffing companies to enter into uh, business with us and, in essence, extend us credit for temporary labor. Now, we had a expert scheduled to testify. Uh, He was put on our witness list, not uh, cited as an expert, but he came to testify as an expert and his expertise was uh, known by the prosecutor and the judge by virtue of him sending in a letter to U.S. Attorney John Walsh uh, discussing the case and, and requesting that the case be dropped because there was nothing uh, untoward that was done with the, that he said we did with staffing companies. And he actually said in the letter that if uh, our conduct that the government was claiming was proof of a crime he knew 12 other companies it's just customary business practices so a man by the name of andrew alberelli who owns a multi-million dollar staffing company was willing to come to court and testify given the fact that uh he would have uh did severe damage and probably destroyed the government's case both judge arguello and ausa kirsch matthew t kirsch conspired together to ensure he didn't testify And in doing so, they violated the law. And I'm going to support that by discussing a little bit of the law right here. Uh, This is Rule 16B1C, which states that a defendant, at the government's request, must give the government a written summary of any expert testimony that the defendant intends to use. If and only if the defendant first requests disclosure of the government's expert witness and the government complies. Well, the prosecutor argued to the judge that our defense experts should not be allowed to testify because we didn't provide him with an expert summary. Well, as you just heard, the law didn't require us. And only required us to provide him with any expert summary if we first requested that of the government and the government complied. The government didn't have any experts. So that was not even a possibility. Uh, and Judge Arguello disqualified him from, test, from testifying under this Rule 16B1C, which was a clear violation of the law. And, and you said who ruled that? Judge Arguello. Okay. Uh, now, Congress gave specific instructions on this. We're going to get into the uh, to, to exactly happened with the appellate court. States that uh, that expected testimony of both defense and government witnesses are triggered by defense requests for information. We never it was never triggered. We never asked for the government's information. Our expert had an opportunity should have been allowed to testify. They destroyed us. This was a blatant violation of the law and the intent of the law that Congress set forth. Now, as Dave mentioned earlier, 
we were not able to present witnesses in our favor, which what which is what the Sixth Amendment grants us. Right. So we were denied due process. We couldn't put on a key expert witness that would have said the government's case is nonsense and everything that we did was consistent with uh, the industry practices. Now, when it goes to the appellate court, they look at the same law. This is this is inarguable law. They they said no. The judge, we're going to let it stand. The violation of the law is going to stand. No, you didn't get your expert to testify. It's a Sixth Amendment violation, but it's pretty much harmless that uh, your expert couldn't testify. You, you, it's 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 just unthinkable uh, with regard to that. But this is another example, just like in Lawana Clark's case, that the appellate court, Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, judges Baldock, Hart, and Holmes just completely ignored the law. It's like. No, no matter where we sought redress on whatever issue, violations of law by judges and prosecutors. Again, it was another cover-up, and our expert testimony would have rendered the government's case. Uh, it would have castrated it completely, and the government knew it. The judge knew it. They conspired together to deprive us of the expert witness. Dave. Well, if you look, a few weeks ago, we had Andrew Abarelli on our show, and he talked about what he would have testified to. And you can see, obviously, that that would have thrown the case completely out for the prosecution. They wouldn't have had a leg to stand on. You look at um, Matthew Kirsch. I remember when we were at the sidebar, and he was arguing against allowing Andrew Abarelli to testify. He said, I don't know anything about this witness. Well, Andrew Abarelli was on our witness list, and we said, but Andrew Abarelli sent you a letter, and we can get that letter. He said, oh, I've got it right here. Well, you've got it right there. Then how do you not know anything about this witness? So you could see that he knew that that witness getting on the stand would have changed the course of, that, of, that, of this trial. Well, I just received information uh, uh, from an uh, associate of mine. Uh, and I'm not naming his name right now. He, he will be a, a guest on this show that an ethics complaint has been filed against Matthew Kirsch uh, by the Colorado State Supreme Court or information is being submitted to the Colorado State Supreme Court on ethics uh, by Matthew Kirsch. Uh, stand by for further information on that. Uh, I have talked to this gentleman who did who was done very badly. Uh, by the office in which, and by directly Matthew Kirsch, uh, the AUSA at the time of the RP5 case. Stay tuned to this program as we bring updates on that. Uh, and as we and anyone else chooses to file a complaint against Mr. Kirsch, uh, it is appropriate. Uh, normally I say this, I say this all the time. When you see misconduct, I promise you it is not an isolated act of misconduct. It is a pattern of abuse. Uh, I have no doubt in my mind that over the years of, of service, uh, and that's why, again, this is someone not connected in any way to the RP5, to their case, who suffered, contacted me about a month ago of what he suffered at the hands of Mr. Kirsch, uh, and he doesn't live nowhere in the state of Colorado. 
uh, I'll tell you what, it starts coming out the woodwork shortly. Dave, your thoughts on that? Well, I think this is great because one of the things that we found out when we were looking up uh, Matthew Kirsch and some of the other people that have been involved in this uh, miscarriage of justice, Matthew Kirsch actually has been, I don't know if he still is, but I know in the past, he was teaching a class to other lawyers on ethics. So now we can see how the Tenth Circuit is so messed up when you have somebody like Matthew Kirsch teaching other attorneys about ethics. Well, what you do, you actually create the next generation of abusers of the law. That's the danger. And those that have not had any experience, they look to these um, figures as the... uh, role model, if you will, of the hierarchy of the criminal justice system. Therefore, they give automatic respect. I would suggest to anybody coming out of law school that even considers going to any training, any workshops uh, involving the name AUSA Matthew Kirsch, run as far away from that as you can if you intend to keep Uh, the decency that you may be right now as a human being in fairness. You're not going to find it at the feet of Matthew Kirsch. Clint, go ahead. Yeah, this is uh, something that you just think the American people really need to get engaged. They need to really get involved when you see the erosion of civil rights granted to us by the Constitution. Uh, This is something that we all got to take seriously because how, how long can the Constitution suffer violence? Uh, at, at the hands of the likes of Matthew Kirsch, Christine Arguello, and this uh, uh, undue process, violation of the law in the court, blatant uh, at the appeals level. How long can the Constitution suffer that before it comes to your, to your doorstep? you got to get involved if we want the Constitution to remain alive and Lady Justice to stand up out of the street where she has fallen then the American people need to get involved in this situation. Oh, without question. Uh, David, go ahead. Now, I'm going to, we talked about that they deprived us us of the expert witness, Andrew Alvarelli. Now, in doing so, they went squarely against their own precedent. They violated the law of the Tenth Circuit. Now, these three judges, or at least two of them, were involved in what Dave mentioned as the Nacho case. And this is what they said about uh, expert witnesses being depri- being denied in criminal proceedings the defendant is entitled to keep his cards close to the vest meaning that in criminal cases the government has no right to know what defendant's experts are going to testify about unless the defendant surrenders that right by first requesting to see the proposed testimony of the government's expert witnesses this is 10th circuit law mm-hmm. the, that the defendants have no obligation this 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 case was in 2009 our trial was in 2011 and with knowledge these then the uh these judges sat on this opinion that said you cannot deprive defendants of their expert witnesses and they don't have to provide you with any notice in a criminal case. The whole thing by Matthew Kirsch was manufactured and conspired, and Judge Arguello conspired, obviously conspired with him to violate the law 
And again, they refused to overturn the case after this Sixth Amendment violation, and we spent eight years in prison. This is just another example of that. Well, without question, uh, these are things that I'll tell you what, you don't hear about it. You don't hear people standing up against the wrong within our system enough. You have to be a voice. Do I have to spend eight years in prison and knowingly read information in this case, knowing these men, the RP5, are locked up wrongfully? You could read the appellate argument and know without a doubt these men have been done a huge miscarriage of justice. The words, the words of federal judge actually Serkin was clear. I believe, and I quote Judge Serkin, that a huge miscarriage of justice happened to these men. And he has been a, a voice and an advocate from the day he believed it. This is, uh, this is not someone that simply is just someone that's going to law school. This is a federal judge that spent 60 years on the bench or in the law in 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 law 60 years and in his career never ever spoke up in regards to a case that he felt was wrong outside of what we know as the hurricane carter uh uh, case in which he ruled in favor of hurricane carter um this is a tragedy and you cannot even faithfully say to a friend of yours who may be going through uh, a situation with the court system, I got a call today from a, a sister and a brother who is suffering a huge levels of injustice and wrong by uh, the state prosecutors in New Jersey. And bewildered that she cannot believe that these things are happening to her. I can tell you The condition and the stripping of human dignity and human belief in a system that continually spits in the face of those that have been wrong. And we are to believe that you are for the people? As I say all the time, that bus, that train left the station a long time ago. What the IRP5 men have suffered is absolutely unacceptable. Absolutely. Eight years. Eight calendars. Eight Christmases. Eight birthdays. Unacceptable. And until we become outraged with this conduct and speak out and be a voice in this time, it just continues. It just continues. William, go ahead. You know, I was just thinking as we come to the end of this show is how timely this is with all the social unrest that, we go, that is, we're facing as a country. We're seeing the police officers, the bad ones, overstepping their bounds. People need to understand that this whole system, from the badge, from the badge officer all the way to the court that judge, there's corruption there all the way through. And it, we need to really put this whole system under, under a microscope and look at it. Our listeners, it's even more important that they understand, and we spread the word more and more because, I mean, you think about it. George Floyd would not have gotten a fair shake if it wasn't for the video. These guys right here had evidence 
they didn't get a fair shake. They would they took the same evidence that wasn't presented at the lower court to the appellate court. Still didn't get a fair shake. And as you just pointed out, they cost them eight years of their lives. These men were innocent, innocent, wrongfully convicted. And we saw, we saw towards the end of 2020, I think 2016, 2015, 2014, we saw record exonerations. We saw it. Now all of a sudden, you and this is continuing more and more. This story is panning out more and more, and we need to wake up our system. It's our system. We, as, as citizens of this country, need to be more active, let our voices be heard, and, and because we're the only ones that can activate a change. If we're looking for somebody else to implement a change or to say that it's even wrong, George Floyd's death would never have been caught. It would have been something that they would have justified. Well, here's the tragedy. George Floyd... His experience, his death, shook the entire world. And guess what? They're still killing black men. They're still hog-tying African-American women in police cars. They're still putting their knees on the necks of defendants who are helpless. They are still killing people on the streets without cause. After George Floyd's case shook the world, what does that tell you? Well, it, it tells you the culture is of such strength. I'm telling you, we said it once, we'll say it again. A culture is difficult to change. It's difficult to do. Samson, your thoughts? Well, I mean, William makes a good point in the fact that, I mean, we as the, the citizens of this country have to actually get out there and make our voices heard if there's going to be any change to be, ma- to be made. You're right. There's, there's absolutely too many crimes being committed by police officers against, you know, honestly, my brothers and sisters that are just by society's definition a minority. But the thing is, like, they're all, we're all equal human beings. There's no one person's life that's more valuable than another. But the fact of the matter is that it, these cops can feel justified, justified in hog-tying women, putting their knees on the necks of men, suffocating people, and just honestly murdering people in the street based on the color of their skin and a preconceived notion of who they are. If we don't get out there and say something or do something about it and actually leverage everything we can to advocate for this, then what are we, what are we really doing? Well, I'll tell you this. Every side of our society is in harm's way right now. Absolutely. And that's not only from the police brutality for those that decide to act that way, but for this system with the RP5 and our beloved sister Luana Clark. To go to prison six months. Six months. With proof of innocence. And the Tenth Circuit says, we don't see it. It is a disgrace. It is a disgrace. It's unacceptable. Until until this country becomes outraged 
And until it visits your front door, make no mistake about it. The abuse of this system is growing in record numbers. And it will continue to grow until what? We get enough people that will stand up and fight against this type of abuse. It is, it is the most horrific thing. In this case, in the last three to four weeks, I have been floored. Floored by what I've seen. And you want us to believe in a system that continually assaults our citizens. The disgrace. Ladies and gentlemen, feel free to learn more about this story and information about federal judges behaving badly. Google that. Federal judges behaving badly. And you'll find press release speaking to this issue. We will pick up this again next week. I'll tell you what, folks. You better buckle in because this story does not go away. For AJC Radio, for the IRP5, David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zapolo, Clint Stewart, and along with the AJC team, we bid you farewell and good night. We continue to fight for justice. This is AJC Radio. <laughs>